The title of my sermon is From Woe to Worship. You'll hear this phrase used quite a bit this morning. If you were here five, six months ago during a Wednesday night, I taught on Psalm 3, which is another lament. And again, if you know the laments, right, this is a pretty uh, popular category of psalm in the Psalter. Uh, that's the consistent movement from woe to worship. But here's the big idea, and you'll hear this a lot this morning as well. We need the Word, the Bible, to move from woe to worship. Uh, back in 2012, we just moved to Washington State. Uh, I was diagnosed with a kidney stone, and you know, I, I didn't really know what to expect. Uh, a birth mom told me, uh, this is a mom in our church in Washington that had had four boys. And she said, Chris, I would rather, and she's had numerous kidney stones. And she said, I would rather have all my four boys over again than experience another kidney stone. And I said, oh, that's great. Okay. <laughs> so it was late one night and it just hits me. And you can't really do anything about it, right? You just endure the pain. So I'm in our bathroom just throwing up from the pain. And Haley's like, baby, let's go to the, let's go to the ER. No, I got this. Let me, I'll tough it out. Just give me some time. And I'm just puking because of the pain. I've never experienced pain like that where I'm throwing up. Sorry for being so graphic. Who cares? Um, this is what happened. This is the story. And, and so I'm throwing up. And this goes on for hours. And hey, I'm waking up my wife. I mean, now we're probably 2 in the morning. And she's like, babe, we got to go. And I'm like, no, I, I think I'm feeling, and it just doesn't get better. And then finally I start to see blood, and that's not good. And my eyes, like all, it's just the bloodshot. It looks like I got punched in the face by Mike Tyson. I looked a mess. I felt terrible. And so finally I acquiesced. I said, okay, let's go to the ER. We go inside, and if you've ever been in triage, there's that goofy little poster. And there's two extremes, right? There's the smiley face. You know, and then, and that's like a one, pain level. That's a one. That's where you want to be when you come in. And then 10, it's like this face of sheer panic and suffering, and it's like sadness, all of those things. It's it's just, you know, and that's, she goes, you know, Chris, where are you? From a one to 10, I'm I'm like, I'm a nine, five, but I want to be a one. I want that goofy face. I, I want the smile, and I want the pain to go away. And eventually it did. They, they hooked me up to an IV, they got me on some meds, and I was able to move from one extreme to the other. I'm going to argue that this is so relevant for us today. You find yourself on one end of the spectrum and long to be on the other. So the question is, how do we move from woe to worship? Something has to happen. Something has to happen. Like me in that hospital room, something had to happen. I had to be administered some medication to get me from, you know, 9-5 to eventually a 1. I thought about this psalm a lot lately, and I know the, the last year and a half here at Kelty's has been, I think, an exceptionally difficult time. There's been a lot of suffering in our church. I'm not sure if you're, if you're new here, uh, you know, you're, you're not maybe sure what I'm talking about, I don't think it's indelicate of me to mention some of these things because we're a family, right? So a year and a half ago when when Haley and I got here, um, we mourned the loss of an infant, little Tori. And shortly after that, a fellow pastor brother, Brother Jerry, went to be with the Lord. That was hard. I think I've done five funerals since I've been here. 
We've seen several brothers and sisters go on to be with the Lord. And I think of Miss Versi's bout with cancer. And more recently, I think of the Osheskis. I think of their hard diagnosis with Byron having autism. And I think even more recently of, man, little Cade and leukemia. And of course, our recent failed adoption. Loss is hard. Suffering is difficult. Disappointment can be debilitating. So how do we move, and I'm talking to believers here, how do we as Christians move from one extreme woe to worship? How do we do that? By recalling who the Lord is and what he's done and trusting in him. It is our trust in who he is and what he's done as revealed in his word, the gospel. We need the word to move from woe to worship. Amen? We need to be reminded of the gospel. Now, examples of this abound in the New Testament. If you look at Paul's writings and you look at Peter, they're addressing suffering churches in the ancient world of Rome. All right? And so if you studied Paul's epistles or Peter's epistles, that's a common theme, right? There's persecution, there's opposition. So how does Paul seek, how does Peter seek to help these churches move from woe to worship? By reminding them of the gospel, who Jesus is and what he's done to save sinners, and then calling the churches to trust in the Lord. Let me give you two examples. I'm not going to spend much time here, but this is fascinating. So, Philippians. I love Philippians. If you look at Philippians 1, 29 to 30, Paul highlights the suffering of the believers, right? These believers were suffering. And then in Philippians 2, 5 to 11, he brings to their attention the gospel, So they're suffering, but then what does he do in response? He brings to their attention the good news. And then how does Philippians end? Philippians 4.20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. It ends on this note of worship. And we see the same thing in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, 6-8. Peter brings to light the church's suffering. They're suffering. They're being persecuted. But then in 1 Peter 1, 19 and 28... 1 Peter 3.18, he highlights the gospel, who Jesus is and what he's done to save sinners. And how does 1 Peter end? 1 Peter 5.10-11, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. It ends on a note of worship. I want us to examine the three movements of the lament psalm. Every lament psalm is structured the same way. It begins with woe, suffering, opposition. The psalmist, David, is crying out in pain to God, God, help me, help me. The game changer is always found in the middle. Okay, So again, if you look at the beginning of the lament, there's woe. Everybody say woe. It ends on the note of worship. How do you get from one extreme to the other? It doesn't make sense until you read the middle. Because in the middle, what does the psalmist do? What does David do? He recalls 
who God is and what He's done, and he trusts in the Lord, thus moving him from woe to, to worship. So we'll look at those three movements that are characteristic of every lament psalm. Woe, recall and trust, worship, and then I have one final additional point. So let's start with woe. Verses 1 and 2. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. David is groaning before God. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. That was verse 3 as well. So what's David's situation? David is distressed because of his enemies. He was opposed and mistreated, the object of slander. Who's ever been in a place of woe? Raise your hand. You've been in a place of woe, a place of great sorrow, distress, and suffering. If so, you, my friend, are in good company. Do you know that the majority of the Psalms fall under this category type? There are over 60 laments in the Psalms. That's a lot. That's a ton. I mean, close to half. What characterizes these Psalms is the initial response, the transformative middle, and the glorious end. The laments characteristically begin with the psalmist crying out to God in anguish. Or as Steve Lawson writes, the psalmist opens his heart honestly to God. A heart often filled with sadness, fear, or even anger. Now in the middle, as we'll see later on, this is where the transition happens. This is the game changer in the middle. The psalmist, by God's grace, is able to recall in that moment God's goodness, His character, His mighty works, and trust the Lord. And this inevitably moves him from woe to to worship. But again, let's start with the woe. Let's start with woe. It's a hard place to be. It's true. It's hard to be in the season of woe. And I think for many Christians, there's guilt. There's shame. I shouldn't be here. I'm a Christian. I know the gospel. I shouldn't be in this season of woe. However, this is an appropriate response to the fallenness of our fallen world, to death, disease, opposition, and suffering. And yet we can't remain here, okay? Woe is appropriate, yes, even for the believer, but the believer cannot remain in a state of woe we're not meant to. Amen? We're not meant to. The perfect paradigm for this, of course, is the work of Jesus. Think of it. Yes, at the cross there was suffering and death, but suffering and death gave way to the what? The resurrection, the empty tomb, to glory. You know, we see Jesus, our King, in a place of woe in the New Testament, in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know what I'm talking about here? Jesus in a place of woe? Listen to Mark. This is Mark 14, 34 to 35. And he said to them, so at this point he has a few of the disciples, Peter, James, and John. He takes them to a place to pray. And he says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. I mean, that's woe. 
That's woe. My, my soul is sorrow. This is Jesus speaking. My soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And yet we know that Jesus didn't remain here. What follows? Listen, verse 36, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So Jesus, he trusts the Father and he entrusts himself to the Father. This is a question that I think baffles the world, but even Christians. How do we suffer well? How do we suffer well? That even that just sounds counterintuitive. How do we suffer suffer well? Well? Like to be well means to be whole, even physically whole. But how do we how do we suffer well? If I'm suffering, I'm not well. So how do I suffer well? <laughs> what do we learn from our text? In the Lament Psalm, right, this is Psalm 5. The psalmist David brings his pain and his suffering before the Lord. He brings it before the Lord. He calls out to God for help. And oftentimes, if you know the lament and you've spent time in the lament, man, it's raw. It is emotionally charged. We find such language as, why? Why, O oh God? How long, O oh Lord? That's raw. In each case, however, the psalmist is bringing his situation to the Lord. He's calling out to the Lord. Suffering well, this is key, and if you're taking notes, I'd write this down. Suffering well begins with altering our gaze from our circumstances to the sovereign king. Amen? It's, offering, it's altering our gaze, changing our gaze, moving away from our circumstances, our woe to our sovereign king. Here, even here, we see the evidence of trust, of faith. David knows that the Lord is able to work even in the midst of extremely difficult situations. So when you find yourself in a season of suffering, begin to call out to who? To the Lord. Bring your concerns before the Lord. No, he cares. He's a caring and compassionate God. Now, I don't know if you've studied this psalm before, but the language used is remarkable. I mean, maybe you're like, David, the audacity. I mean, he's commanding things of God. These are imperatives in the original Hebrew. Listen to verses 1 and 2. Let's go to verses 1 and 2. So in verses 1 and 2, David aims several commands at God. Give ear to my words. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. Man, these are desperate entreaties. And obviously, David is not putting on airs. He is being honest with the Lord, pouring out his heart to God, bringing the Lord's attention to his hurt and pain. Man, I would argue that such a bold appeal between David and the Lord assumes a relationship and an intimate one at that. You don't, you don't just speak to some you know, casual 
unintimate relationship this way. I don't, I don't just walk up to somebody on the streets and address them this way. I speak to someone this way that I know and love, and I know knows and loves and cares for me. So David's not being irreverent or casual, but real. He's being relational. He's being reverent. And this is seen in how he addresses the Lord. This is easy to miss, but catch it here. How does David address the Lord? Did you catch it? Oh, Lord my king and my God. Oh, Lord, my king and my God. One scholar writes, this is helpful. This is uh, Willem van Gimmeren. It's a great last name. The phrase, my king and my God, recognizes that while God is the sovereign king and able to deliver, he is close enough to his children that they may call him my God which is the equivalent of Abba. So the woe is real and appropriate. The woe addressed to the Lord marks the beginning of our trust in the Lord. It's how children are called and expected to respond to their Heavenly Father. It denotes intimacy, a relationship with God. And yet this state of woe is not to last. Amen? It's not to last. But how do we move from woe, one extreme, to the other, worship? Or better stated, how are we moved from woe to worship? And that brings us to point number two. And again, this is everything. This is the game changer. If you're at all concerned about this, if this interests you, and it should, because all of us will suffer, many of us have suffered, and many of us are suffering now. So how do we as believers move from woe to worship? That's God's desire. It's his will for his people, right? And he shows us how in his word. So pay attention. Don't miss this. Don't be a fool. We need this, amen? I promise you, I know some in here, you've never suffered a day in your life. You feel like that, but you will. Your body's going to break down. There's going to be loss. How do you respond? How does God's word show us to respond? Verses 3 to 10. So point number 2, recall and trust. Recall and trust. Verses 3 to 10. Oh, Lord. This is, man, this is it. Listen. Oh, Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. That's good. Now he's talking about God's character. He's not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your what? Your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. What grounds David's trust? He highlights God's attributes and actions. He recalls who God is and what he does. This is the game changer. 
How do we move from woe to worship? What does David do? He recalls, he remembers who God is and what he does. This enables him to move from woe to worship. Again, what enables us, church, to move from woe to worship? It is the gospel. Our trust in Jesus. Halfway through our time in Florida, I remember sitting in the car with Haley. We were in this hotel room waiting for a call that would never come. We already got several sweet moments with the birth mom and the baby, but things just weren't looking good. And so we're sitting in the hotel room. The call never comes, right? And Haley's just like, we got to get out of here. Let's go for a drive. So I took her to the zoo. <laughs> Zoo's a fun place, right? But I remember sitting in the parking lot of the hotel, and I look at my sweet wife, and I said, Haley, if this falls through and we don't end up adopting this baby, our hearts are going to be broken. It's going to be really hard. But let's not forget that because we've trusted in Jesus, our sins are forgiven, and we have the hope of eternal life. Why would I share that? Maybe you're hearing, that's not appropriate, Chris. That's very appropriate. Because the glories of the gospel in that moment, and in all moments, outshone our pain. Amen? And I promise you this, in that moment, we were moved from woe to worship. Our trust in the Lord and in the wonderful promises associated with the gospel, when we held to those things, and again, moved our attention away from our circumstances and fixed our hearts and minds on the good news of Jesus Christ, we were moved from woe to worship, and we continue to be moved from woe to worship. What is David doing in our passage? Let's look at Psalm 5. The crux of our text is again, really verses 3 to 10. That is where David spends time recalling who God is and what he does in trusting in the Lord, which enables him to move from what? From woe to worship. And again, if you read any of the laments, this is consistent. Woe to worship. What's the game changer? Recall and trust. So let me just summarize verses really 2 to 10, for you quickly. In verse 2, David acknowledges God as king, the sovereign Lord who's in control and whose will shall be done. That's massive, amen? In verse 3, David brings to light the wonderful truth that God hears his prayers. He knows that because he belongs to the Lord, he has the Lord's ears. That's a great reminder, amen? In verses 4 to 5, he highlights God's righteousness and holiness. In verse 6 and verse 10, he addresses God's commitment to judge the wicked. And in verse 7, he hopes on the basis of God's steadfast love to enter into his glorious presence. He trusts the Lord. And in verses 8 to 9, he juxtaposes his enemies with the Lord, again, highlighting God's righteousness and wisdom. The point is this, there's no one like our God, amen? There's no one like the Lord. Now, this wasn't the first time David had been opposed by his enemies, threatened 
and mistreated, slandered, and maligned. One thinks of his face-off with Goliath, right? 1 Samuel 17. There, if you're familiar with that passage, God fought on behalf of his people. There, God provided rescue and salvation. There, God made a way where there seemed to be no way. You think David remembered that? Do you think David kept that event close to his heart, close to his mind? Of course he did. Of course he did. What event should we as Christians keep close to our heart and mind? The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's when we remember who God is as revealed in his word that our faith is strengthened. Because the one we believe in is good, he's wise, he's faithful, he's merciful and holy. The one we believe in, church, has granted us new life in forgiveness. The one we believe in is with us and is working all things together for our good, right? For the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Where do we go to be reminded of these things? Where do we go to be reminded of who God is, what he's like, and what he's done? I wonder. It's a book. It's the book. Where do we go? The Word. I mean, that's the big idea, right? We need the Word to move from woe to worship. Amen? These things that we treasure and cherish about God, His faithfulness, His goodness, His love, His mercy, His holiness, His justice, His saving work on behalf of sinful people, we find those things where? In the Word. We need the Word to move from woe to worship. All right, back to my kidney stone. You guys were hoping you were done with that story. No more vomit, no more blood. Oh, there's more, baby. It's coming. No, there's not. There's no more graphic language. But I did realize in the hospital that I needed something external, right, to relieve my pain. Something outside of me. I, I really, I couldn't do, you know, I, I felt pretty desperate. I, I could not get comfortable, Right? I mean, punch me in the face, and, and that'll go away after a while. But, like, this would not go away. It had been hours of just puking. I mean, I, I, see, I, I see medical staff doing this. <laughs> they know you've been there, right? It's horrid. I needed something external to enter in to bring me relief and rest. In order to worship as believers, which is the goal, something external must come in. What? The Word of God. The Word reveals the goodness and faithfulness of God. And these things support our trust. They remind us to trust. They enable it. So recall and trust by the Word which reveals to us the Gospel. We need the Word to move from woe to worship. Now, for so many in the church, when suffering comes, a season of woe, and we tend to relegate the word to the periphery. Why? Why do we do that? That's when we need it most, amen? The word is God's healing balm for our heavy and hurting hearts. The word shows us the trustworthiness of God. Again, we need the word to move from woe to worship. All right, what of the final movement of 
this psalm, the lament. I call this the beautiful crescendo, right? I mean, this is, again, you think of the two extremes, woe to worship. I, I think of, again, uh, in triage, <laughs> that little diagram, the smiley face, no cares in the world, right? Feeling good to, I feel like I'm dying, and, and I didn't want to be here. I wanted to be here. And if you're in a season of woe, I know you don't want to remain there, and you don't have to. By God's grace, as you just saw, by, by coming into this, by allowing God's word to speak to you, his truth to minister to you, you, by God's grace, can move from woe to worship. So let's talk about worship. Verses 11 to 12. This is the crescendo. This is the beautiful climax. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Again, how does David move from one extreme to the other? David's not bipolar, by the way. He's not. This is important, guys. Church family, this is really important. David's not ex exceptional, okay? I mean, yeah, he's a man after God's own heart. He had the spirit. We see that in 1 Samuel 16, but so do we in Christ. Amen? So how did David move from woe to worship? It's due to something real. It's due to sound doctrine. Everybody say sound doctrine. Doctrine is what you believe about God revealed in the, in the Word. David had sound doctrine. And that's where he went. That's verses 3 to 10. He's recalling who God is and what he does. And that sound doctrine, which David knew to be true about God, gave way to what? It gave way to worship. How is, I mean, this is insane. If you're, especially if you're not a believer. If you're not a believer, I mean, the world looks at these examples and they're just like, what in the world? is This is craziness. This is insanity. How is David able to go from groaning to singing? And not just singing, but singing for joy. It was his trust in the Lord. I'm going to say this again shortly. I'm going to expound on it. But listen to this. The Lord, don't miss this. The Lord sovereignly uses seasons of woe to move us to worship in this for his glory. I remember driving home with Haley, empty car seat behind us. Man, our hearts are heavy knowing we're going to have to talk to our kids more about this, knowing we're going to have to face you guys, you know, family. We had such high expectations, and we're driving home, and we're sad. Our hearts are heavy. But this is what I told Haley. I said, sweetie, the Lord has us right where he wants us, and that for our good, and that for his glory, and our sanctification. Amen? I believe that. Man, verse 11 is so good. Listen to verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. David trusted in God's promise to right all wrongs. David trusted in the Lord as a place of refuge for his people. And that was grounds for what? Worship. The believer, the follower of Jesus, the one who trusts in the Lord is able by God's grace to move from woe to worship. 
And this is a clear demonstration of the power of the gospel. I mean, the church sees it. And they're like, wow, praise God, I know that power. But then the world sees it. And they're like, I don't know that power. What's going on here? Let me give you a little lesson in church history. This is a great lesson. I learned this. Let's learn it together. Do you know that the ancient world was captivated by the early church? Why? Why was the ancient world so captivated by the early church? They were captivated by their ability to suffer with such poise. To suffer with such poise. To praise God amidst the flames of persecution. And the Lord used the early church's witness coupled with the gospel to evangelize the world. Again, what enabled the early church to suffer so well? It was their trust in the it was their trust in the Lord. It was their doctrine. They knew the end of the story. They knew where history was headed. They knew what lay beyond the grave. And they trusted the Lord. And they suffered well. Amen? I mean, if you, if you, if you study the martyrs, I mean, many times they're praising God in the flames. That's insane. No, it's not. That's the Lord. Amen? That's suffering well. Church family, in your season of suffering and woe, don't despair. Don't despair. Instead, call out to the Lord and recall the gospel. Trust in the Lord and who he is and what he's done. Rest in the rich blessings found in the gospel. New life. Amen? Forgiveness a forever relationship with God, a new family, and a new hope that no one can put asunder. <laughs> and then what do you do when you recall those things? What do you do, church? When you trust, when you know those things to be true, what do you do? You worship. You worship. Give him thanks and praise. Preach the gospel to yourself in those seasons of woe, and then worship the Lord. This is wonderful motivation for knowing the Word, right? If the Word is key from moving from woe to worship, what should we know? The Word. Again, where do we find God's goodness, His attributes, His promises, His faithful saving works? We find them in the, we find them in the Word. Because we need the Word to move from, from woe to worship. One more thing to notice here, and a brother and I discussed this this week, and I thought it was really helpful. There's a corporate element to David's worship. Did you catch it? There's a corporate element to suffering well. I mean, woe unto us if we see a brother or sister in Christ suffering and just kind of say, you know, hey, I'll, I'll let them deal. Hands off. Oh my goodness. That's pretty common in a lot of churches, right? In verses 11 to 12, David is calling the people of God to do what? To worship with him. All right, so verse 11 again, but let all, listen to the language, right? It changes from singular to plural. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them, who? Them sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. All right, so here's the question. How are you, church, coming alongside brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering? 
How are you coming alongside brothers and sisters in their season of woe to call them to worship the Lord with you? To open God's word with you? To behold God's attributes and his saving work and to say, by God's grace, fix your eyes here. Don't just fixate on your circumstances. Look to the Lord, who he is and what he's done, and let's worship him together. Help them recall the character of God and the promises of God in the word of God. Many of you have reached out to us. And it's not just these, you know, kind of pie in the sky. Hey, when God shuts the door, he opens a window. None of that mess. It's been scripture. You sent my wife and I the word, the truth of God's word. And the Lord has used that to move us from woe to worship. If you've suffered, where do you find peace and consolation? Where? In the word. What do we need? If we're going to move from woe to worship, we need the what? Guys, do you get this? Again, God has been so good to us through seasons of sorrow. He has used his body, his bride, his church to come alongside us and to open God's word with us and to call out to God on our behalf, with us, in our tears. We need that, don't we, church? So there is a corporate element to suffering well to moving from woe to worship. Again, church, if you see a brother or sister suffering, come alongside them, pray with them, open God's word with them. Help them to move by God's grace from woe to worship. All right, one final point. One that we can't miss, one that takes into account, and I said I would come back here, God's providence in our pain, his sovereignty in our suffering. Point number four, relationship. Some of you may not like this, and, and that's not okay. It's not okay, so I, I hope you hear me out here. Listen to this. The Lord uses our suffering to draw us close, to deepen our dependency, to grow us in our conformity to Christ. Listen, there is a relational intention or goal. There's a relational intention or goal at the heart of our woe. A woe that falls within the parameters of God's providence. Now, how does this work? Look at David. Look at David. What does he do in his woe, his suffering? He engages the Lord. He leans in. He prays to the Lord. As mentioned before, the Lord is sovereign in our suffering. And we see that throughout Scripture. One thinks of Job, Joseph, in Jesus, the three J's. These are all examples of God's sovereignty and suffering. And because of time, I want to visit two of the examples. I can't go to all three. I want to give Job, but I'm going to go Joseph and Jesus. So two for three, all right? Joseph, I mean, one, it's an incredible story, but it takes up a large percentage of the book of Genesis, really starting in chapter 37 all the way to 50, it's about Joseph and in this really difficult life, this young man who's sold into slavery by his brothers. I mean, his family. And then he, you know, has favor with the Lord. But then Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him of rape and he's thrown into prison. Like, man, what is going on? Let's highlight this in verse 20. This is after the Lord has brought Joseph out of prison, he's put him in basically second place. He's second to Pharaoh. 
He's used him mightily, right, for the saving of a nation. But listen to what he says. His brothers are worried. I mean, you know, they realize, like, man, this guy's got a lot of power, a lot of authority. Surely he didn't forget what we did to him, you know, when we sold him into slavery. You know, he's going to end us. Dad dies. I mean, we have no hope. Joseph says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Man, Clark was really hurt when all this happened. He was really devastated. And when we got home, I laid in bed with him, just kind of had him in my little crook. And uh, I just told him the story of Joseph. I I walked him through the story of the life of Joseph, how all these horrible things happened. But God was working sovereignly to bring about the salvation of a nation. You know, buddy, we only see part of the story, but we know that God is good. He's in control. He's sovereign. He's working. We're going to trust him. We're going to trust him. The text says in in Genesis 50, verse 20, that God meant it for good. God was sovereign over Joseph's suffering, and he had a glorious purpose planned. His glory, right, God's glory, the rescue of a nation, and Joseph's growth in trusting the Lord. Through Joseph's long life of suffering, he learned to trust the Lord, to lean into the Lord. He matured, amen? He matured. And now we come to Jesus in the garden. This is really good. Again, I read part of this already. Um, Mark 14, 32 to 36. This is moments before his arrest and crucifixion. It says again, they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Here's the lesson. Jesus, in the midst of suffering, goes to the Father in prayer. He leans into that most sacred of all relationships, his eternal relationship with his heavenly Father. What a glorious example for the church. And of course, this was God's sovereign will. Could it be, could it be that the Lord allows, and more specifically, that he providentially plans our suffering to draw us closer to him and deepen our dependency on him? Yes, and amen. I bet many of you know Psalm 34, 18 by heart. The Lord is near to the what? To the brokenhearted. And he saves the crushed in spirit. He's near to the who? The brokenhearted. Listen to this quote. This one brother writes, Suffering, Sufferings bring God's presence near in a way that nothing else can. I agree with that, right? Sufferings Bring God's presence near in a way that nothing else can. He goes on to say, Afterward, sufferers come to realize that they could not have received their deeper joy in God any other way. I can look back on these seasons of suffering, of woe, of pain, and see how the Lord used those seasons to draw us closer to Him, and I praise Him for that. I'm not saying we should be gluttons for punishment. I'm not saying we should pray to suffer, but we should trust that when God providentially brings suffering into our lives, 
It is to draw us closer to him. It is to deepen our dependency on him. It is to sanctify and mature us and make us more like Christ. You know, who's got young children? Adam, you got young children. Who's got young children? This is important. What, what do you do, dads? Let me talk to the dads. What do you do when your children are scared, when they're sad? Let me ask this. Children, what do you do when you're, sa- when you're scared or sad? What do you do? You run into your father's arms, right? I, I love Sammy, my little daughter. She'll, she'll say, I cared, I cared. And then she'll just run and dive into my lap. And it might be something like the wind's blowing outside. I cared, I cared. And then she will just dive bomb into my lap. She's running into my arms. I, I love that. What must we do when we're suffering, church? We run into the Father's arms. Amen? We run into the Father's arms. Let me just sum it all up. Let me sum it all up. In order to move, or better stated, be moved from woe to worship, we must recall who God is and what He's done. We must fix our hearts and minds on the gospel and then trust the Lord. And when we see with eyes of faith the glories of Jesus in the gospel, we are moved to worship. Amen? Furthermore, we must be committed to helping other believers get there from woe to worship by coming alongside them and opening up God's word with them and reminding them of who God is and what he's done. Also, and and this is where we ended, we must rely on the sovereignty of God in our suffering, in our woe. The awesome God who is in control, using these seasons of suffering to draw us closer to him. Lean in. Lean in and be conformed more and more to the likeness of Christ. See these seasons of suffering as God's providential means to draw you closer and again to deepen your dependency on the Lord. And then pray. And then pray and and lean in and open the word and engage the king. Let me end with this. Let me end with this. Church, I I hope you're encouraged. I hope you're blessed by this. Let me speak to unbelievers. If you're not a believer, I I want you to hear this. If you've not trusted in Jesus, I I want you to hear this. The Bible talks about an eternal woe. The good news for believers, like these woes, these seasons of suffering, we know they're not going to last forever, amen? There's coming a time, if you're familiar with Revelation 21, 1-4, there's coming a time when there's going to, for the believer, for those who have trusted in Jesus, there's going to be no more suffering. There's going to be no more woe. Every tear is going to be wiped away. There's going to be no more mourning, no, no more pain, no more death. I mean, we know that these seasons of woe are not going to last forever. But the Bible does talk about an eternal woe, which is life without God, eternal suffering in hell. And this woe that the Bible speaks about has no end. And it is reserved for those who have rejected Jesus, those who continue in their rebellion against God, those who say, I'm going to live my life without God. There is an eternal woe reserved for such people. And yet there's hope. Namely, for those who do trust in Jesus. 
Because Jesus came to rescue sinners from this eternal woe. Amen? I mean, come on now. That is why in seasons of sorrow, the Lord has held us up. Because in those moments, we remember, yes, this is hard and I hate it, but because of Christ, I have been rescued from an eternal woe. Amen? I have forgiveness. I have the promise of life forever with God. Jesus came to save sinners from this eternal woe. He came to create eternal worshipers. And this begins with trusting in Jesus and who he is, fully God and fully man, and what he's done. He lived a life that we cannot live. He died the death we deserve because we've broken God's law. All of us have sinned against a good and holy God. We've lied, we've cheated, we've murdered in our hearts. We have disobeyed God, we have broken God's law, and because of that, we deserve hell. And we owe God a debt we can't pay, which is a perfect life. Jesus paid that debt. He lived a perfect life. He obeyed the law perfectly in our place. And then he took the punishment that our law-breaking deserves, which is what? Death. And he died in our place at the cross. And to prove that what he did worked, he rose again. And the Bible says if we trust in Jesus and turn from our sin, we can be saved from that eternal woe. We can become eternal worshipers of the one true and living God. So come to Jesus today. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Without your word, we would have no hope. I pray that as a church body, we would hide your word in our hearts, that we would know it well, that we would know it intimately, that we'd be well-versed, God, in your attributes, your character, your saving works, all found in the Holy Scriptures, so that when, God, you providentially move us into these seasons of woe, that we begin to recall who you are, what you've done, trust in you, and by your grace be moved to worship, and that for your glory, and that for the encouragement of your body, and that for the evangelization of the world. Father, help us to suffer well, and help us to help other brothers and sisters in Christ suffer well, that when we see brothers and sisters in need, moaning, crying out to you that we would quickly come alongside them, pray with them, weep with them, open your word with them. Help us to be a good, God-honoring, Christ-exalting, word-hiding-in-our-heart church. Father, to love you more each day, to trust you more each day, to share the gospel more each day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.